In his uh, book, Guns, Germs and Steel, uh, Jared Diamond describes the fate of the Moriori people. They lived uh, on a group of islands in Polynesia called the Chatham Islands, about 500 miles east of New Zealand. They lived in isolation for 500 years, but in November 1835, 900 Maori warriors arrived and promptly started killing them. A survivor recalled, the Maori commenced to kill us like sheep. We were terrified, fled to the bush, concealed ourselves in holes in the ground, but it was to no avail. We were discovered and killed, men, women and children, indiscriminately. And a Maori conqueror explained, We caught all the people, not one escaped, we killed them. But what of that? It was in accordance with our customs. And uh, Jared Diamond goes on to explain his conviction in that book, Guns, Germs and Steel, that this was an example of a simple evolutionary process. In a world ruled by the survival of the fittest, frankly the Moriori were doomed. And as that Maori said, what of that? It is the universal customary means of survival. Really? Are we simply to uh, shrug our shoulders when we hear of the extermination of, uh, uh, or virtual extermination of a whole people and put that down to nature? I mean, actually an awful lot of ink has been spilled in the last uh, hundred years or so to explain the, human, uh, the origin of human societies and cultures in purely evolutionary terms. This series is celebrating 150 years since the publication of The Origin of Species. And uh, Darwin himself, not in that book but elsewhere, anticipated and seemed to accept that many lesser races and cultures of people would be killed off in the evolutionary race for survival. And more recently, alongside People like Jared Diamond, Richard Dawkins has uh, pictured us as merely um, the vessels for selfish genes. These genes create bodies to fight for them effectively. It's a powerful story. But somehow I think everybody here would agree it doesn't fit with our deepest instincts about what it is to be human. The story of the, the, the Moriori and the Maori makes us recoil. 
and say that's wrong. Or in Europe, we have our own story. Adolf Hitler consciously was following Darwin's ideas when he ordered the extermination of what he considered to be an inferior race, the Jews. And it rightly stands in our history as an archetypal sin of mankind. Human beings are more than a mass of competing individuals fighting to the deaths. We just are. And a purely biological explanation of who we are does not fit with ordinary human experience. This morning I I want to try to persuade you that another explanation does fit. Indeed, it makes sense of who we are in ways that nothing else does. More than that, I want to show you that it liberates us to be the people that we instinctively sense that we are. And it's all summed up in one little phrase that is found in the Bible. The Bible says we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2 here, um, some of which we read, are two parallel creation stories. Genesis chapter 1, we've already seen in previous weeks, focuses on, 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 on the whole of creation, on God's creation of his whole universe. But even there in chapter 1, the climax of that creation on the sixth day, indeed in the second part of the sixth day, um, is the creation of human beings explicitly said there in chapter 1 verse 27 to be made in his image. Let us make man in our image, chapter 1 verse 26, in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the the creation story of Genesis chapter 1. But then in some ways, Genesis 2 repeats that story. This time, in a slightly different form and with a different focus. Genesis 2 focuses on a description of the first man and woman. The first man in particular. Adam. Verse 7 of chapter 2, for instance. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Well, before we go any further, that immediately raises uh, uh, questions in our minds. How did God make us then? Are we to read Genesis chapter 2, for instance, as a, as a, as a literal description of God's uh, making of us? I want to say, um, certainly it is clear in Scripture that Adam was a literal, historic person. In Romans chapter 5, in the New Testament, for instance, um, he is specifically uh, contrasted with Jesus 
who is a literal historical person. And the comparison doesn't, simply doesn't work if Adam is a mythological uh, figure. And the Bible insists he is a real person of history. Interestingly, science doesn't, contrib- uh, doesn't contradict that. It, um, science, for instance, notes fascinatingly that human beings, your average two human beings, are uh, from completely different parts of the world, are more closely related genetically, even though they may look completely different, than um, chimpanzees that live just five miles apart. Human beings are amazingly closely related genetically. Perhaps, says the Christian, because they come from one person or two people. But did God literally pick up a handful of soil and uh, um, form this man out of it? He, uh, let me say, um, similar words that I used last, last week, he could have done He absolutely could have done. God is a God of miracles. But personally, I'm not convinced that we are required to believe that by Genesis chapter 2. There are features in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that that seem to require, to, to, to cry out for us to understand them symbolically. For instance, in Genesis 2, We saw the tree of life there in verse 9 of chapter 2 that stands at the centre of the garden. And the tree of life in the Bible disappears until the very last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, when up it pops again. But in Revelation 22, that is a highly symbolic picture. Nonetheless true, but a highly symbolic representation of our eternal future, God's new creation. The tree of life is part of that symbolic picture in Revelation 22. Could it actually have a symbolic purpose in this story at the beginning in Genesis 2? The Bible does, on occasions, tell us true stories that they're not myths, they're not fictions, they're not fantasies, they are true stories, but it tells us those stories using imagery in order to help us to see the deep significance behind that story. It's not so much interested in the surface events as what's really going on behind the scenes. It may well be that Genesis 2 and 3 are that sort of telling of the real story of real people, Adam and Eve. That's actually why I personally am am, am broadly open, if um, science uh, demonstrates it, to a a broadly evolutionary process that may have led to to the formation of human beings don't think it needs to threaten our understanding of um, uh, the Bible. And it certainly doesn't mean that God is any less in control 
God is in control absolutely of the so-called natural processes that happen as much as the supernatural. The Bible doesn't make a big distinction. But you see, even if, his, even if some form of evolution is true, it doesn't begin to explain who we are. Indeed, when the likes of Jared Diamond and Richard Dawkins and others start trying to explain who we are in purely biological terms, it starts to become clear how weak and thin that explanation is. Simply does not make sense of common human experience. I want you to see this week and then over the next few weeks that actually the account written in Genesis does a far better job fundamentally of explaining who we are. And it does so by using this phrase, we are made in the image of God. What then does that phrase mean for us? Um, That's the next question that we need to uh, uh, address ourselves. What does image of God then mean in Genesis chapter 1? Now our first thought um, uh, that immediately of course comes into our mind is that it must mean that we just look like him. And uh, that may not be entirely awry actually. Um, The New Testament says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. He's the best picture that we could possibly have of what God is like. And he came as a human being. So those um, uh, childlike ideas of God as an old man with with, with a beard or whatever, taking into account the fact that ultimately God is unknowable, but they may not be such a bad approximation to what we can imagine, our best imaginations of what God uh, might be like. We are like him in some sense. But I I don't think that explanation gets to the bottom of what the New Testament, the Bible, generally is talking about. Historically, theologians have, have, they've looked for certain abilities that human beings have which mark us out as being like God. Perhaps the ability to reason or the ability to speak or uh, some have suggested the ability to relate together as uh, male and female and we're going to see more about that um, next week. Um, I think it was a rabbi who suggested that actually we're in the image of God because we have the unique ability to laugh at jokes. I rather like that one. But I don't think that one gets to the heart of it either. Uh, Others suggest that it's because we possess a soul. They suggest that that's um, what's being spoken of when uh, Adam, in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, um, has um, uh, breath breathed into him. 
And uh, though actually that event is very significant, as we're going to see in a minute, the, the idea that that is the, the, the giving of a soul to Adam uniquely founders on the fact that um, uh, uh, in several places, including in chapter 1, um, creatures are said to have the same breath of life in them. It's the gift of life that God is giving to, 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 to Adam, not of a soul. We haven't got there yet. What is it? What's the core idea in Scripture? when it speaks of mankind being made in the image of God. Well, the core idea seems to be this. It seems to be that we rule in his place. That's perhaps not quite right. We rule on his behalf. Maybe a better way of, uh, uh, of putting it. Look at the connection that there is in chapters, uh, verses 27 and 28 of Genesis 1. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, I create you in my image and I appoint you to... Uh, rule on my behalf over, over the creation. Or in Genesis 2.15, we have the same idea. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. God rules the world, but he has enabled one species to imitate him, one species to image him in this world, Homo sapiens. To be honest, that is undeniable. And it seems to be the central idea in Scripture of what it means to be in the image of God. We have a unique role in this creation that no other species has to rule over it, to care for it, to look after it on God's behalf. That is a, um, an extraordinary privilege and an extraordinary responsibility. I want just to, for a few minutes to think about the privilege and then about the responsibility that Genesis 2 in particular sets before us to get a vision for what God created us for. The privilege includes a oh, you're not going to get the sub point, sorry a unique relationship with God. A unique relationship with God. That's what Genesis uh, 2.7 is actually talking about, I think. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and became a living being. The significant thing is not that he breathed the breath of life uh, into him, that he gave him the breath of life. All creatures have the breath of life. The, the, the significant thing is that he took the man uniquely and brought him face to face with him. 
and breathed into his nostrils like the kiss of life. He created Adam uniquely to have a a face-to-face relationship with him. A relationship that continues actually in the chapter as God speaks to him, as God gives him instructions. You alone in this world were created able to have a relationship with God. God speaks to you. He speaks still in this book. He gave you the capacity to reason and to have speech and all of those other things which are uniquely developed in human beings, um, but he gave you them for a purpose. Because he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to hear him and understand him. He wants you to live for him. We also not only have a unique relationship with God in the whole of creation, we have a unique relationship, as we've already said, with the, with the creation itself. And that is an extraordinary privilege. No other species um, is given the responsibility of, of, of ruling over the earth. No other species in history ever has consciously ruled over the earth. There may have been a day when dinosaurs ruled the earth, but they weren't having summits to decide how to do it. But we can. Only human beings can gather, the, gather people for a Kyoto summit and decide what to do about global warming. Only human beings can uh, um, make a conscious decision. Let's start farming, shall we? Rather than just uh, running after the nearest thing that passes by when we feel hungry. Let's, Let's build a city, shall we? Let's build boats and go out and fish the seas, shall we? I wonder what's over the horizon... We have an extraordinary privilege in our role in this world. It's a privilege as well, notice in Genesis 2, characterised by freedom. Verse 16 of that chapter, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And there are limitations, we'll see in a minute. But uh, fundamentally, he had massive freedom. Or uh, back in verse uh, 12, as um, the the, the area is being uh, described, there's a tantalising little observation, which I love. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. In other words, God's put stuff in his creation for Adam to go out 
and find. And when he gets there, he can decide whether he wants to go panning for gold or looking for onyx or whether that nice smelling resin that uh, um, caught his nostrils is something he wants to investigate and found Chanel. I mean, he can do what he likes. What's the point? It's just all out there. Good stuff to do. God's not telling him every minute of the day, this is what you must do. He can become a goldsmith or a perfumier. doesn't matter. God gives um, Adam freedom in his, uh, um, uh, in his uh, sovereignty over the beasts as well. Look at verse 19. The Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the earth uh, uh, of the field and <coughs> all the birds of the air. God made them. But then he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called the, each living creature, that was its name. He probably raised his eyebrows a bit when someone decided to call something an axolotl. But they were free to do so. I don't know whether you heard of the um, um, uh, the little gazelle from Africa, which is called uh, Nyala now in all the books and zoos and so on, where you would see it. Um, actually, what Nyala meant in uh, local tribal language wasn't quite what the early white people who went along and uh, saw them bringing home these gazelle thought it meant they pointed at them and said what's that and the people said Nyala um, or Nyala actually which meant food (laughs) there you go human beings make a few mistakes but God lets it whatever he called the animals it's your call You can decide, Adam. Within that freedom as well, we've already started to see there is wonderful opportunities for creativity. God creates, but he makes in us little creators. He enables um, Adam to uh, go and get that gold and make rings and brooches and crowns or whatever out of it. Genesis uh, goes, goes on later on to describe the, the creation of musical instruments, the invention of smelting, the uh, uh, starting of great building projects, the development of agriculture and on it goes through the Bible until right in the, the, uh, the last chapters of Revelation when the new heaven and the new earth is being created we're told the glory of the nations was brought, is brought into that new creation. God didn't invent the musical instruments that we will play in eternity We did. And God will take them into his new creation. On Friday I sat down with uh, Trevor Avery and um, 
Don't know whether you noticed it, uh, Trevor, but I marvelled at the, the uh, wonderful software that um, architects have these days for doing their, their drawings. I mean, if, that surely software design is the new es- engineering. Amazing. Every Sunday I listen to those musicians uh, uh, over there and I think, what a great gift they've got. I love cooking and I love the glorious global variety there is. You know, God didn't invent chicken chow mein and lamb biryani and cocovan and Sussex pond pudding. We did. He just gave us the raw materials. That's the glorious creative freedom that God has given us. I, I know you moderately well and I know that this room is bursting with creativity. Because God made you in his image. And let, let me say, apropos of nothing, and I don't usually do this, but, but, but you are demonstrating this within the life of the church as well as beyond. I was so excited yesterday to see the team who started uh, um, renovating the church. It was great fun. You were doing a magnificent job. Martin Grove, Trevor Avery, David Parker, Brian Hennegolf, and, and, the, and the great big team who were helping them, they deserve enormous thanks. It's part of our creativity to do creative things as God's people together, not least looking after the building. And I I do want to say, in the midst of that, that in the midst of this this energy and dynamism um, uh, that we have together as, uh, as a church, there is great fragility. If you'll excuse the metaphor, when, when, uh, a dozen years ago, when, uh, when I came, um, Magdalen Road was, was like an, a nice pony and trap. It was, it was, it was trotting along nicely and doing okay. These days it feels like, you know, there's a dozen stallions, um, charging ahead and it is incredibly hard work for the elders to try to give uh, uh, direction. So please pray for us as leaders. It's a fruit of your, your dynamism that we, have that, uh, that we have that challenge. Let me also say there is very significant financial fragility um, uh, for us as, as a church. The poor elders were up until 11 o'clock on Friday night deliberating about... Um, uh, budgets for, for next year amongst uh, other things and we want to facilitate and support that, that wonderful energy that there is amongst us but we, frankly we do need to have the cash to do it so if, if you're someone who's relatively new here and you've not thought about giving um, regularly let, can I say now is the time to do that because financial plans are being made for, for another year. And even if you haven't thought how much, if you fill in your, your um, response slip and just put it in the response box and say, I'm thinking about giving more, or tell Martin Grote or Peter, uh, Peter Lever, I'm thinking about giving a bit more, be a great encouragement to them. Because it is exciting and a challenge because you are 
creative. You are being the people God called you to be. That is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Not, not just for us as we function together as God's people. It's a privilege for you in the whole of your life. You have the opportunity to image God. To create not quite like God does it, but still to create. You have great freedom. But with that freedom comes responsibility. Verse uh, 15, for instance, emphasizes our responsibility towards the world. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it, And to care for it. We can't be lazy. We can't ignore the world. We can't rape the world and abuse the world. We are to work it and to create, uh, to to care for it. Or um, uh, look what he says um, uh, to the uh, man in verses 16 and 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but... You may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you will surely die. More of that in a couple of weeks. But just for now, um, let me remind you that in that glorious freedom and creativity there are guidelines. Not nasty, tight restrictions. You can, eat, you can do all sorts of things, but there are things that you shouldn't do. That liberty is not a liberty just to go out and do as I wish. It's a liberty to find imaginative ways to care for this world and look after this world and use this world in positive ways that are ultimate sovereign and Lord. God himself will say well done. That's why we held the Kyoto Summit, to go back to that one. Because we have a responsibility. That's why a wise modern person will be modest in their use of resources. Because global warming is a real issue. That's why the wonderful gift of sexuality should be used within certain bounds because outside of that, in the end, we damage ourselves and we damage other people. That's why, though we animals don't have quite the same rights as we do, we still have a responsibility to care for them and not cause them unnecessary harm. That's why it's a tragedy if a species disappears from this earth. Because God made it beautifully diverse. We have responsibility to God. Actually to one another too. It's very significant, you see, that every single human being 
is made in God's image. In uh, many ancient cultures, the idea of someone being in the image of God was quite familiar. But it was the king who was in the image of God. Everybody else had a lesser status. The Bible says everyone's in the image of God. That's why we can't abuse other people. That's why the Maoris shouldn't have, have slaughtered the Moriori. Because every human being has a unique dignity. We have no rights over one another. So how are you going to lose, use your life then? That's the picture. Glorious privilege. Significant responsibility. How are you going to use your life? Here's my call to you if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me say to you, is there anything else that makes more sense of your life than the Bible does? Is there any understanding of who you are more satisfying, more attractive, more glorious, more true? This, this simple story, this millennia old story is more true than a thousand learned 21st century articles and books. It frankly is. It sings with truth. It makes sense of what the vast majority of people instinctively understand about themselves and one another. It really does. And it calls you to be followers of Jesus. To be those who are actively committed to imaging God on this earth. If you resist that call, if you don't follow that call, you will do yourself enormous damage because you'll be violating who you are. And here's my call to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. I want to say to you, just breathe the fresh air of that. The freedom, the creative opportunity. You know, there's a very large proportion of us here are, are young. And you have stretched out before you the extraordinary, the most extraordinary privilege that you could ever imagine. I want you to see that. I want you to know that. To live your life imaging God. We put that in the, at the heart of our vision statement because we, we want that to be the heart of our life. We are called to display God's glory. To be people who, in the way that we live our lives, 
in, a, in an imperfect and a tiny way, are little pictures of God. He's the great, great ruler and creator, but we work under him and for him on this earth. That is an extraordinarily dignified calling. There's a thousand ways you can do that. But there is one way that you can fail. By ignoring God. By setting out actually to live your life for something quite different. And you can choose I want you to imagine something with me, just, just for a minute, that I was imagining as I prepared. Just suppose that by some miracle of God's grace and spirit, every single one of us here is absolutely captivated by that vision. Now, it's the nature of things here that in a, in a few years' time, most of us, frankly, will be scattered throughout the world. That's the way this church uh, functions. And actually, I would say it's almost 100% certain that this precise group of people who are gathered here this morning will never, ever gather again as this precise group until we gather again in eternity. That's just the way Oxford is. So imagine this is a unique experience. The next time we're going to be together, we're going to be together in the presence of Jesus. And on that day, our whole lives will be laid out. Imagine what everyone will be saying. I was a doctor. I cared for tens of thousands of people. I, I was a teacher. I, I, for 40 years as, I, as a teacher, I shaped the lives of thousands of children for good. I was a mother or a father, and I had a profound impact on just a couple of lives, and they in turn caught the vision and, 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 and lived it. I was a businessman. We made stuff together. What more godly thing to do than to make stuff. I was a cook. I was a farmer. I was a researcher. I was a musician. I was, I was, I was, I was. And the, the, and the clamour as everyone talks rises to a roar as they're retelling the events of their lives. And then the angels start singing with delight. But then suddenly Jesus arrives and there's a hush. And he says to this gathered throng, he says, why did you do all these things? And with one voice, every one of us here turns to him and says, we did it, Jesus, to be your image bearers on the earth. Jesus says, well, that's great. Where did you catch that vision? And we say, well, one of the key moments was one spring morning in Oxford when we were last together. And we read Genesis chapter 2. And we were entranced.
And Jesus says, Well done. Well done, good and faithful stewards. Come and share in your Father's happiness. Could happen. God wants it to happen. God has provided the resources for it to happen. Let's pray that it does happen.